You're listening to Perspectives in Parryville. Today, my guest is Sarah White, a conversation analyst and lecturer. In her research, Sarah studies the often unspoken rules of language and how people, in conversations, use words, phrases, tone of voice, and even pauses. Much of the focus of Sarah's research is conversation analysis in healthcare. For example, interactions between surgeons and patients in a clinic. In our conversation, Sarah outlines how language used in interactions can be more or less effective and can be used, most importantly, to create meaning between participants. We explore the significance of a clinician swapping a single word such as some or any, when asking a question of a patient and the impact this has on the patient's response. We also discuss the importance of conceiving conversation and communication as a core skill across a range of clinical and other settings. Here's my conversation with Sarah White. So Sarah, good to see you again. Now, the nature of your, your research and your, your kind of um, uh, your role is all about communication. So to start things off, I thought we might find out a little bit more about you before you um, arrived at the university. Maybe like, what, were you always a good communicator or, you know, was communication part of your thing? Or can you tell us, take us back? T- take you back. Of course I can. Um, my my interest or my um, love of communication, I guess. I was always interested in languages and, and different cultures. I always thought that was interesting when I was a little um, and learning more about people. Uh, but I'd get the kind of comments on my school reports like, Sarah's good with language. And I didn't understand at the time that that just meant I was talkative. Um, uh, it, that, that was something I learned more as an adult, but I kind of took that as a yeah. I, I am good with language. I am good at I am good at talking. I do a lot of talking, and um, fa- fairly good feedback on on writing. And, and when I got to um, trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life and and uh, decide I wanted to go to university, I had no idea what I wanted to study. Um, and then I met someone who was studying linguistics. Uh, she was about two years ahead of me, an old family friend, and I said, yeah. I'm good with language. That's what my teachers had told me. So I'll do that. Um, and that's kind of, I suppose, how, how I got interested in it. What's, what do you, I mean, I know the answer, but I, some of our audience may not. But what do you study when you study linguistics? What is that? Uh, well, li- there's a lot in linguistics. Um, so you can study things like grammar. Um, so looking at sentence structures and, and things like that. You can study um, more around uh, phonetics, so the sounds of language. Oh, yep, yep. yep. Um, you can study um, a, a lot of different things. As um, phonetics, the history of language. Pardon? Oh no, I'm just phonetics. Oh, I'm just phonetics. Kinda, yes, you know, spelling it phonetically. <laughs> Something very much along so, those lines. 
Um, you can study, um, you know, you look, the history of words and the development you, of language. Are you looking up some words in a book there? I can see that. Uh, uh, no. Okay. I, I, I brought out my Introduction to Language textbook that oh, I used to yeah. use to teach linguistics first years. And I was like, what else? What else is there? Because um, I had, you know, uh, there's a lot to do in linguistics and I, I certainly don't do all of it um, and a lot of it actually. Um and there's stuff around the psychology of language, how people um, acquire language and things like that, how people process language. Um, and then there's the kind of stuff I do, which is looking at language in society. Okay. So how people, how people use language. Yep. Um, and so it really comes down to, you know, that, that concept of communication. But um, what I focus on is interaction. Okay. And so how people, you know, use language together. So, sorry, I, I got a bit distracted. When you, you decided to study linguistics at university, yeah. yep. So, yeah. what was that like? Um, was it everything I mean, it you was, thought it was going to be or, you know, well, did you think, oh, this is not quite what I was expecting? Or I had low expectations, minimal expectations because I wasn't sure. I just knew it was going to be about language um, and I, I was interested in language. So, I suppose I'd, I learnt along the way. And I learned what I was interested in along the way. Um, and while uh, at the time there certainly wasn't any streaming into more of the kind of language and society aspect, I certainly picked the kind of units to study that more. So I, I did focus on that. So kind of more of like a human aspect, is, is that, would that be right? Or Yeah, oh, yeah an interactional aspect and, and how people use language, get things done. I remember my lecturer coming into the class and saying, you will either love this or you will hate this. <laughs> and and it did kind of feel like that. There were a few people in the class that really didn't like it, but I, I really liked it because it really helped me understand, you know, the ins and outs of how we do things um, together, how we make sense of each other, um, how little things can make a difference to understanding how, you know, a tiny pause can mean the world, Um in, in a conversation, it can it can change change the meaning in a response. For example, you know we've all had that situation where you ask someone a question and then they pause uh, with the response. You know it's not going to be the answer that you want. You know that. So that that's conversational analysis. It's what we're doing every day, um, and, and we do it kind of subconsciously. We learn how to do this um, or unconsciously, and and then you know conversation analysis is making that um, I suppose real. If that makes sense. So I did three years of an undergraduate uh, degree and it was major of linguistics um, and Spanish and Latin American studies. So uh, that, that was interesting. Um, but then I had a fourth year, um, to go back to your question, around, and that was an honours project looking at what was called code switching, so switching between Spanish and English um, in the Mexican-Australian community. So when people would use um, words from each language and, and kind of what the structure, grammatical structure was, was around that. It was all casual interactions. So I, I okay. recorded some uh, just conversational um, data from, from families that were happy to participate. Yeah. Um, and so recorded those and um, and also got emails as well. So where people would email each other and then and slip in Spanish words or slip in English words. And, um, you know, that, that was often the way they usually communicated. So it wasn't abnormal or weird. It was just when you're speaking with someone who, it's from that say those same linguistic backgrounds you can kind of do that so I guess I, I guess you did you, you were kind of started on the on the kind of trail of research by the sounds yeah 
what did I did. So that was that was my four, 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 first foray into research. Um, I was involved in the Mexican Australian community. Yeah. Um, in in a, I helped with fundraising for one of the charities that they'd run, and and mm-hmm. I was involved because because my best friend was Mexican, Mexican Australian. So you know, I was involved from that kind of perspective. And so when I was talking to her about what I could do, alternative to what I really wanted to do, um, this kind of project idea mm. came up she she was studying linguistics as well so um i suppose that that's where that started um and but what i really wanted to do was doctor patient communication okay so um but but doing that within a year with no ethics i need i needed to get ethics yeah. and that was going to take longer in the medical field than it was in in social interaction so uh that that idea was dead in the water i guess so what happened then what happened so I did the the one on on code switching, mm. um, which was on social interaction, and then I got to the end of my degree and I had no idea what I wanted to do. I remember saying to my uh, honours supervisor, "I like this linguistic stuff. How do I keep doing this as a job?" Mm. Um, and he said, "Basically, you need to get a PhD." So um, I remember being a bit annoyed because <laughs> I was like, "I didn't I didn't sign up for that," um, but. Uh, came across a research group in New Zealand actually through my father who was a GP and he was at a conference and he saw a presentation and they talked about doing research on communication in healthcare and they talked about starting to use conversation analysis and my dad uh, went oh that's stuff Sarah's interested in and got the the contact details and I suppose the rest is history I contacted them and they were happy to have me so that that's where I got to go into what I wanted to look at uh, in, in medical communication. So the, this PhD you speak of, um, what did you start with a problem or a conundrum or something to solve or to, you know, what, and, what, and what did you actually find out? Um, I, I originally wanted to look at, because um, uh, I liked this idea of intercultural communication um, and, and understanding what was going on with that. And, and I was going to look at international medical, medical graduates um, who were non-native English speakers um, and looking at how they um, understood instructions from more senior um, native English speaking doctors. So that was kind of where I wanted to go. Um, and I probably shouldn't dwell on that because that's not where I did, did go uh, because in discussions with uh, people who became my supervisors, um, and, and looking at some of the stuff uh, they were, the, the data they were collecting at the time, I, I was really drawn to these surgeon-patient consultations um, because I had had experience as a person living with uh, chronic pain, having these interactions which were not great. And so seeing those for other people and that happened made me go, this is, this is what I need to look at, this is what I need to figure out so I can help people, like so I can make a difference with my work. Um, which is where I've kind of always wanted to to take take my work. So um, I looked at the structure, the interactional structure of surgeon-patient consultations, and and by that, it's kind of how the consultations tend to flow. What's that kind of overall structure? What are the activities that occur, like history taking and examination? Where do they occur? How do they occur? What are these patterns? Because we understand understand that well for primary care, and so the the kind of space was well. Is that the same in secondary care? Is that the same in surgery? Um, and a lot of it is very similar, but a lot of it's 
different as well because seeing your GP, as you know, is very different from seeing a specialist. Um, there's different goals and different assumptions and different knowledge that the doctor has about you. And I kind of got to the end of the PhD and was like, I've done this. Does it matter? Like, how, how are people going to find out about this? How is it going to improve care? What, to, what can I do to make, you know, that patient experience better? Um, how can I help doctors communicate more effectively? How, how can I help? Um, and so for a little while I stayed in public service and then I decided to learn more about uh, medical education. And so I, I went into some medical education roles um, for a while and then found myself um, in uh, academic role uh, in communication healthcare, basically. You're listening to Perspectives in Parryville. So when you're doing research in terms of like looking at communication with surgeons and, and patients or consumers, what, what's involved? What do you actually do and what are you hoping to find out? Um, I guess the, the most important thing uh, to start with is assembling the team. Uh, and so it's, for me, it's really important to have a clinician from the clinical group uh, on board as much as possible as part of that team. And, and that role can be different. It can be someone who's, you know, a co-investigator or it can be someone who's, you know, in an advisory capacity or something like that. So we, we come together and we discuss what kinds of problems or um, concerns they have about communication, um, what they think is important. And I bring to the table what I know from kind of the literature or what I've observed in other research I've done. And, and we kind of develop that problem, um, that idea together. Uh, from there, it's it's really kind of uh, drawing out what that project might look like um, and then writing an ethics application. So it's really important to make sure we get um, con- consent from people who participate and that they understand, you know, that, that we are recording them and, and that we're going to keep that keep that data to analyse it. Um, so what is it? What, and, do, what happens? What, like when you say recording people, what's the, yeah. what's the setup? Like is it a like a doctor's office or something or...? Yeah, so once we get the, the ethics and, and that's all signed off and all those, you know, data privacy and, and storage requirements are, are met, um, we the, the main way I do it, it does differ project to project. But what I mostly do is myself or someone from the team, which could be a student. I often have uh, student researchers, so doing medical degrees, I have to do a research project or undergraduate students, postgraduate. Um, we go into the clinic and uh, often the, the reception staff are very helpful and, and kind of say, well, well, you know, we've got some people here who are doing some research and then um, are you happy to speak? And then when we talk to the patient. So at this point, the doctors, we know which doctors have consented. And they're happy to participate. So it's just the patients that are seeing them. And we take the, the patient through the kind of consent process and what to expect and if they're happy to and, you know, sign uh, sign the form. Um, we then take a video camera into their consultation and leave the video camera on a tripod in the consultation. Uh, so we don't sit in. Uh, we, we, we wait out in the waiting room, maybe talking to the next patient. Um, but, yeah, we, we video record that interaction. And then that, that might be like five minutes or an hour or depends yeah. on the situation. And depends then, on a lot. Um, oh, yeah. right. Well, <laughs> see, I, don't, I don't know this territory. What, what do you mean it depends on no, a lot? 
It depends. Well, sometimes in one clinic, for example, uh, the doctors were quite consistently late. Uh, so I've got a video of a patient for 45 minutes sitting by herself, uh, which was an That's opportunity for those doctors. <laughs> that is a pause. So the the doctors, you know, they, they know this is happening and we talk, we kind of debrief a bit about it. And so for them, they were like, oh, wow, that was a really long time. So it's also a kind of a chance to informally reflect on, on what's going on in their clinic, which is which is really important too. And so do you do this like um, like 10 times or 100 times or how many how many of these little setups do you have? <laughs> um, it, it really depends. This is very qualitative research. So we're not reliant on numbers per se. Um, but what we're trying to do is get, a, I suppose, a broad enough collection of consultations um, to analyse. And increasingly the way... I'm doing that is to create smaller collections where I focus on one specialty, for example. So I'm about to start a project where I'm focusing on orthopedic surgeons, for example. Um, and so we're going to just collect in there. So, and then, uh, and this, this one's with medical students, and then hopefully next year we'll focus on another uh, specialty and then we'll be able to do some comparison between what occurs in say orthopedic surgery and plastic surgery for example in those consultations so i guess in a lot of in a previous era this sort of research might have been a bit troublesome because the cameras would have been too big and they would have spooked everyone i guess yeah so um i find uh, even with slightly large cameras people tend to forget they're there and because the way in which interaction works it wouldn't be possible for us to stop using the norms of communication or those kind of rules that underlie that interaction. What does that mean? Uh, we can't stop. So um, it's not like grammar. It's, 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 there are rules, I guess. The rules can be broken, obviously. But, for example, there's turn-taking rules. So when I'm talking in a conversation, uh, this is different because it's an interview, so there's slightly different rules. But oh, in a normal con having a conversation? Come on, well, I'm trying to swing it so it feels like Sorry. It does. It does. Yeah. And look what you did there. You came in and you got the floor. And oh, there's ways that we... It's a thing, hey? There's ways. It's a thing. It's a, it's the way we do that. Uh, how do we get the floor in an interaction? And so there were turn-taking rules that allow us to do that. Um, and there's, you know, units within communication. They aren't sentences, they're turns. Um, and once those, one of those Are is finished, you can come in. Are we in one of those now? And we don't, I don't even know it and I'm in oh. one. <laughs> You're doing one. Oh, okay. You're doing one. So it's one, it's, you know, like an answer to a question, for example, might be a turn, you know. So uh, once I've finished a turn, that's a relevant place for you to come in. Okay. Uh, in, in like the a rhythm or something, a rhythm? Yeah, so, something like that, close. Let, let's yeah. go with that. Um, so there's a, there's a way we, so there's all these underlying rules and I've forgotten why <laughs> we yeah, were talking about them. a surgeon them. talking to their patient or their, uh, the patient and a surgeon and they're, uh, I guess they're, well, I guess they both have questions of each other, I would imagine. So Yeah, so... What, what we might look at is what, what are those, um, how are those rules from ordinary conversation applied in those situations? So as I alluded to, an interview would have slightly different rules. One of those rules is I get to talk for longer. Um, you can still so talk less... for longer if you want. <laughs> Even no, if but there's, you no, know, in an interview, I'll get to talk for okay. longer because you're, in, you're interviewing me. Yeah, the question's so, shorter than so that. So I get to, so I get to talk for longer. Exactly. Um, uh, in normal conversation, it's a bit more back and forth. Balance, the exchange of information yeah. or opinions. 
Well, uh, just exchange of turns. Okay, yes. So, yeah. Um, I, I suppose when we're looking at interaction from this kind of perspective, it's less about information in and information out, and it's more about mm. how we build meaning together. All uh, right, I like the sound of that. That sounds like a, um, what's that, uh, like when you do teaching, um, Oh, it's a teaching theory. I should know it. Uh, uh, constructivist? Constructivist. It's constructivist approaches to teaching. Yes. You're building yeah. meaning. So it's, we're, we're building together. So what I say influences what you're going to say next. And what you, what you say reflects on your understanding of what I have just said. Okay. Is that like, uh-huh, when you go, uh-huh, and then you come up with something that's sort of almost but, evidence, you know, understand what, you're saying and you've uh, another prompt or something. Sorry. So what, what might be a way of, no, it's, that's oh, fine. Clattering so way, conversation. No, no, the way, the way it might happen, you know, uh, the example I give is um, often give is, is someone asking if you're free on the weekend. So if I said, are you free on the weekend? There are two main ways that you can interpret that. One is I want to hear about what you're doing on the weekend. It's just general interest. The other one is I'm going to ask you, if you mm. want to do something on the weekend. Mm. So the way you would respond to that would reflect how you've understood that, what your interpretation is of my turn, which said, what are you doing on the weekend? And then I might go. And so if oh. you, you might go, oh, I'm going to the beach and then the movies and going to have fun. And I'll be like, mm. and if I said, okay, oh, cool, that sounds fun. Then I, that, I am kind of complicit in, in agreeing like that, yes, that's definitely what I meant in the way I designed my first turn when I said, what are you doing on the weekend? But maybe you say that and I said, oh, because I was going to ask you if you wanted to mm. go out. Mm. And then that indicates my first turn actually was going to be a pre-invitation. It was it, That's what it was designed to do. It was going to see if you were free so then I could invite you to somewhere. So does that make sense? It does. I'm sort of, I'm, I am following why is this uh, sort of significant maybe? What's going on there? Like why is it kind of worthy of further attention? Um, I guess, well, in, in everyday talk it helps us understand how people make sense of each other and sense mm. of the world and how people oh, mis do things together. Misinterpretation or something, if they're misinterpreting or if they're working efficiently together. Or, yeah, so sorry, we can I then see how... I over you then. Sorry. I'll, I'll keep no, <laughs> No, no, it's, it's, it's fine. Um, uh, the, it's, it's how then in, in a clinical sense we might see these kind of patterns emerge where things might be more effective or less effective and we know whether they're effective or not by how the participants respond. So we might see, for example, the way in which a clinician opens a consultation and one way in terms of asking why the patient's there, one way they might get a really nice, beautiful, long um, problem presentation with the patient and one they might get um, a short abrupt one that doesn't give them enough information and we know that problem presentations the longer ones the less history taking the doctor needs to do mm -hmm. so yeah. having a long one is good they tell you uh, enough information history taking is about filling the gaps rather than you know uh, not having that and also it, it, it's that space for the patient to talk so it's kind of like designing a good well, not so much designing, but maybe like looking for ways that you can ask a good question maybe to get a, a, a longer response or something like yeah, that. Yeah, or, or the kind of thing that you want. So there's a, 
a famous, <laughs> I'll use that in inverted commas because it's probably not that famous, but it feels like a famous study where they did what's called a randomised control trial. So they trained one group of doctors at the start of a consultation to say, do you have some other concerns today? Another group to say, do you have any other concerns today? So it's known as the some, any study. And the the reason they chose those two words is that we know from other linguistic research that some is more likely to get a yes response. So do you have some other concerns? Yes. Then any is more likely to get a no response. Um, so they train these doctors. Then they ask the patients beforehand, um, uh, what are you here to the doctor for? And they listed out what they were there for. Now in the consultations um, where the patient had indicated in the survey, right like prior to the conversation, the consultation, like right before, they'd indicated multiple concerns. When the doctors said, do you have any other concerns today? 53% of them said yes, even though they'd indicated just beforehand that they did. In the ones where the doctor said some other concerns today, over 90% said That's yes. That's a huge difference. So it's an absolutely massive difference based on one word. So this what's kind of research. Yeah, what's going on there psychologically and linguistically, even phonetically? No. no. Yes. So, so that word, um, uh, any, so it might sound really open. It might say, oh, do you, is there anything else I can help you with? But what it is, is it's um, what's called saving face of the other participants. So if I say some, you feel more compelled to say yes. Like, do you have some questions? And so you feel like you need to come up with a question, for example. Um, but when I say any, I'm kind of giving you the, the option to say no a lot easier. Yes. So that's why it fe that feels like it's more open, but actually because we're, we're thinking of the other person. But in, in a clinical context, we actually need patients to be able to, we need to give them the space at the start of the conversation to bring up multiple concerns so that the, the consultation can be planned accordingly. So it might be, you know, you get to the end because there's an issue where, you know, you might talk about the main thing and it might take 10 or 15 minutes and then the last thing comes up, oh, actually, I also want to talk about, you know, X, Y or Z and you've only got one, one or two minutes left to talk about that. I, I feel as though we might be mimicking the, the clinician and uh, patient <laughs> dynamic here. I've got my little timer on. Yeah. <laughs> thinking. And the only thing is, I don't know what you're going to tell me in the last two minutes of this section. <laughs> I guess it's kind of, um, I guess, yeah, how do you, like, I'm assuming this has been informed by you building on linguistic kind of theory and research to get to this sort of sum any, that study in itself. Yeah. Is one of, would be one of several that are sort of like yeah, and that's foundations of this territory. Yeah, and that's certainly not the kind of stuff I do. I, I like it because it's a really clear example of what can be done um, and, and that one word difference I think is absolutely fascinating. Um, but certainly um, most of what uh, conversation analysts in kind of clinical communication uh, do is build collections of things that we can see as more effective. So in that situation, we can say that some other concerns is more effective if you want to find out other concerns from people with multiple concerns. So what we want to do is can we see these other things that might be more effective um, strategies for in um, or turn designs or whatever you want to call them in clinical communication. You're listening to Perspectives in Parryville. 
good um, question. <laughs> it's usually so, how okay. these things are done. What's the question? Exactly. So yeah. that is conversation <laughs> analysis right there. That is conversation analysis because what I did was subvert the norm that you expected because I, I was kind of going outside of what you'd expect in an interview just to wait for a question. So I, I challenged that. But also it's the, the norm there is also that you're supposed to be asking me questions. That's one theory. So, yes. That, that, that uh, is. I'll think of a question. The question is... <laughs> um, Tell us about, oh, no, that's not even a question. That's, um, yes, it is. Tell us about your research. Yeah, that's a question. Isn't that a it's not statement? Specific. It's a, it's yeah, a, but, it, but it's acting as a question. Okay, okay. It's, it's, it's not a question with a question mark, but it's, it's the re relevant response. So the relevant wow. response, so this is all conversation analysis, um, <laughs> the relevant response there is, is an answer that answers that question and that, well, that statement, responds to that statement. And when you say, tell me. Oh, yeah. Hmm? Sorry. This is a Zoom thing. Is so when, when you say, tell us about your research, then you're, you're prompting me to tell you about my research. Or I could even say your research. Yeah. And, and then just keep looking at you. Yeah. Your, your research. Yeah. And then I am obliged as someone who is actively participating and freely participating in this conversation, I'm obliged to give you a response that okay. is relevant to what you've said. And that response would be? Oh, my research. <laughs> oh, you're interested <laughs> in my research. Um, where to begin? Um, so similar to PhD stuff, I'm, I'm looking at uh, mainly about clinical communication in that consultation setting. I do a little, few little side things, but most mostly focused on um, how patients and doctors talk uh, in consultations and, and how they uh, work together uh, to make sense of each other, but also how they, um, what, I suppose, what are these different strategies or techniques or um, things that doctors do uh, that, that are more effective and, and less effective or, um, yeah. This is consistent with this something called patient-centred care, isn't it? This is yes, kind of, it's it been is. building over the last sort of short while and it's kind of been yeah. incorporated into when you train doctors at universities. So what is, yeah. well, I guess what is that? What is patient-centred care? What is, what is patient-centred care? Um, it is about all, there's a few different terms that are quite similar, oh. so person-centred care okay. or relationship-centred care. So they're not all quite the same, but thinking of patient-centred care is the, the main term that's used. Um, it's about um, putting the interests of the, the patient first and, and involving them in decision-making and giving them agency, so giving them the ability to participate in these interactions. So from a communication perspective, it's about ensuring they have that ability to participate um, within the interaction and giving them that space. And so when you're, I guess when you're teaching uh, mm -hmm. doctors, doctors in training or, you know, initial doctor education or I'm sure there's a phrase in there, but that this is all based on evidence that you've gathered in your own research. You're sort of do, doing a few different things, I would imagine. Uh, yeah, so, I mean, my, my research does look at, um, I suppose, patient agency and patient-centred care in action. So what does that look like in an interaction and how can we best facilitate that within communication? Uh, a lot of my teaching is undergraduate 
students who oh. are going into careers of potentially medicine, potentially physio, pharmacy, um, public health research, that kind of stuff. So they're, they're on a range of careers. So the kind of stuff I teach there is is more introductory to how interaction works um, and then thinking about what that means in a clinical context um, and what those differences are between the everyday conversations and then um, the clinical conversations. Um, yeah. And what are your students how do they respond to some of this? Is it like mind blowing or is it like, oh yeah, that's interesting? Or is it kind of what's this is a bit fluffy? Or how do they what are, where are they placed? Yeah, it it differs, definitely. Um, I think some some students can struggle with um, seeing it as a science, because there is definitely a lot of science. So, you know, rigorous research around how interaction works. Um, and I, that's not helped by uh, industry at all. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it's changing, but there's definitely been this view for a very long time that things like communication is a soft skill. Um, while, you know, my kind of argument is that it's a core skill because for, for a clinician, for example, effectively taking a history from a patient means they can more effectively diagnose a patient. If they can't do the former, then they, they, they can't do the latter. So seeing communication more as a core skill, which is what I really try and get the students to take away from, from what I teach. And I, I definitely have some that seem to really grasp, I mean, most of them seem to grasp that idea, but some that really think it's fascinating and so have come and done research placements with me, for example, um, either as undergraduates or, or postgraduate students. Um, and so I suppose that's what they're getting from it. And what um, I can tell with you, you're, here I am speaking to a real-life communication analyst. Is that what you call, is that what the phrase? Conversation Converse, analyst. Conversation analyst. And I can hear now that this is kind of like the question goes, and then you're at the end, you come to the end of your <laughs> statement, like, here you go, I've finished that answer, which yep. is quite different to if you're having conversation about blah, blah, blah. But it's like hard to... I can hear it and I can feel it, but it's hard to sort of quantify it maybe. And I guess... Well, we can see it. Sorry. We can see it in ordinary interaction too. So we do hear, we do listen for it as participants. We, we aim for the end of the other person's turn. We, we usually don't get it, um, but we're close. Um, but we can hear that happening. We can hear it coming to an end. And part of that's through the intonation, but part of it's through um, does the response make sense or what they've said makes sense to what's come before, um, so I can I can hear that answer being or that response being uh, completed, for example. Um, so yeah, we, we do that in ordinary conversation uh, in institutional interactions like this one or like a medical visit. There are uh, not set ways, but there are more frequent ways that people might do that. So in a problem presentation for a patient, there's a few ways those end. Um, but one of them is the kind of state statement like, and so that's why I'm here today. Uh, and that's not always how it's done, but that's certainly a way that, that patients can indicate that they've done telling their story. Oh, right, right. They've kind of gone blah, 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 blah. And then the, the very final bit that they say, that they're not, yep. like they're kind of coming back up for air or something. As a kind yeah, of, well, that's, it's indicating to the doctor now, now it's your turn. Oh, right. To the doctor. Now you need to do this. You need to take the reins, as it were. That's not the only way. There are many different ways and um, there's certainly ways of getting back to the problem presentation and things like that, but, but that's one particular way that it's achieved. So were there any particular 
conundrums with the people. Like, I, I guess it's kind of, you said ages ago, in, in like stop, something about these unspoken rules or, you know, these sort of, but do some people fail to grasp the rules and then that, that's where the communication problem comes from or, you know? I mean, I haven't looked into um, that kind of aspect, but I suppose a similar way of looking at it um, is I did some uh, what's called pilot research, so very introductory research with a very small number of, of uh, interactions to look at. But um, in that, we compared naturally occurring doctor-patient interactions to simulated um, doctor-patient interactions. Now, simulation is used a lot in training like with for very good reasons. Or, or something. An with an actor. So simulation is used in different, yeah, and simulation is used in different ways and sometimes it's a volunteer patient, sometimes it's an actor. So yep. in, in the data that we had, it was an actor. And, and what so what happened is that the actor didn't act in the way in which the patients act. Were they directed? Yeah, yes. Uh, no, but it was more about some of the interactional things that you wouldn't necessarily pick up on unless you were looking for them. Like what? So, so like I mentioned, there's different ways of finishing a problem presentation. And I'm just going to get the article out so I say the right words. Right. Um, <laughs> So there's different ways of, of finishing a problem presentation, for example. Um, and one of those is moving to, sorry, I want to make sure I say the right things. Can you just cut this out? Um, so moving to what's known as the zone of transition. So it's this, this space between problem pre presentation and history taking where it suddenly becomes, or suddenly, it progressively becomes more relevant for the doctor to step in. Um, and this uh, is often indicated um, by, sorry, That's I just right. researched a little while ago. Um, uh, so that exit device that I mentioned, but also by the patient presenting more current symptoms. So they're, they're saying it, um, you know, it started with this and then I had this and now it's more like this. So they're, um, they're indicating those, you know, more current symptoms. Um, so they tend to, patients in, in real consultations tend to move from that kind of past tense to the present tense, um, and that allows the doctor to kind of judge where to come in in that zone of transition. But in the actors, in their situation, um, when they were doing these kind of problem presentations, and there are often multiple turns and little stories going on, um, they continued going, going using the present perfect tense. Um, and so they were saying... Things like, I haven't really changed my diet. It's just uh, uh, being really painful. I've been having this. And they weren't getting to what the doctor might expect in terms of that present tense. So it meant the doctor was unable to know when to come in. Wow. And so eventually these, and so they went on for longer. These presentations were longer and very repetitive from the actor because they were waiting for the doctor to come in and the doctor didn't know that they needed to because that, tiny difference um there are a few other differences between them so um i've forgotten your question <laughs> oh this is it's it's a rolling kind of <laughs> it's, it's a <laughs> rolling question but, but, well you're talking about people being ineffective at mm. um knowing they might mm. not know these unspoken rules mm. um and and in this case the actor the actors didn't know the unspoken rules of a consultation per se or how that they should be presenting a problem in a very naturalistic or authentic kind of way. And this has been studied, this kind of behaviour has been studied in 
other things like police interviews, for example, um, and things like that, where we're looking at how people um, in real scenarios act versus how actors act in those simulations. And those simulations are used for training. So if we're training people, you know, we, we need to try and recreate that authenticity in, in an interactional sense. Yeah, at least something that's authentic enough to get the dynamic happening or, you know, it's sort of not, it's not going to present an obstacle or a missed opportunity or something. It's kind of, I guess with any sort of simulation, it's never going to be 100% no. real because it's the nature of simulations is that they pretend, but they, you know, they're sure, certainly pretty good when you come to training people because then you can yeah, and get into the zone. And the, the other problem then is also assessing people. So say these doctors that we'd studied, maybe they were being assessed on this and, you know, if someone was viewing it and not thinking about these, you know, even even I had to go back and remember what I'd written uh, around the tenses and, and which tense was being used in which situation, um, that, you know, as often they're assessed by people who aren't necessarily an expert in communication specifically or, you know, interaction analysis, conversation analysis, whatever. So instead they might just see the doctor floundering they might just say, well, why isn't that doctor coming in? That doctor's doing something wrong rather than, oh, this, this interaction feels weird from both sides, what's going on. And in and this, and this case, it was the, the patient who was presenting um, a problem in, in a way that wasn't understandable to the surgeon. Mm. Like I, I guess from the surgeon's perspective, is it like a kind of instinctive? Is that, it's probably like a really controversial term but is it <laughs> is it something that's are they conscious of it or it's like it's like even with all this conversation analysis it's are people conscious of it or not really or a bit of both bit of both you you know it when it doesn't go the way you think it's going that's that's where you know these unspoken rules happen so maybe maybe i shout out and i say hey mark and you don't respond i say hey mark so i've gone louder and then I, you don't respond. And I say, why aren't you listening to me? So there's a rule right there because we know that the rule is that you're supposed to answer when I summons you. Yeah, yeah? so that, that, I guess that's the, the, uh, the psychology behind the reason why they kind of are not listening. Maybe they're trying to be troublesome or maybe they're annoyed. Well, or I, I don't go into psych – I'm not a psychologist, so I don't oh, step no. into that space. No, oh, I'm, I'm a linguist. Oh, yeah, okay. So, so uh, at- conversation analysis doesn't tend to go into the psychology. We more go into what are the interactional reasons why someone might do something. Yeah. So we kind of go there first. So why? what prompted me to yell? And it was because you didn't respond. Mm. So, so I might not it- know why you didn't respond. We're keeping mm. it at the interaction yeah. level. Yep, yep, yep. So um, it's hard to get into people's head unless you try. Okay, your, I do. You know, that's I, your that's your specific research design, and you're you're asking questions or, or whatever psychology stuff. It would have to be quantifiable, you know. So I guess I can understand. Yeah, it is a lot easier to quantify and measure and do a research in if it's just about the interactions because it, it's you open up a can of worms. It would be really difficult to figure out a zillion reasons what's going on, but you know. It's also used as an excuse a bit, like, you know, 
if I've got students, for example, and I ask them, what do you think is going on here? And they say, oh, they were thinking about it and that's why there's a pause. And I'm like, where's the evidence for that? We can't see that. We can't get into their heads. So let's look for the interactional reason for the pause. And then we see that the pause occurred before the person answered in a way that wasn't expected or wasn't wanted. So it might be, are you free for dinner on Saturday night? And there's a big pause and the person goes, oh, actually, no, I can't. You know, so they're refusing an invitation, which is less preferred in that question design. Um, They'll, you know, being, being asked, invited somewhere. So we can see an interactional reason for that pause because they were going to say something, you know. So they're kind of, you know, preempting for their recipient, the person who's asking the question, that their answer isn't going to be what they expected or what they wanted. Well, communication is how, as I said, how we get things done. It's how we get things done as a society and, and how we achieve things. Uh, so first and foremost, it's the most, well, in my opinion, the most important part of it. Um, you know, if we're thinking of all the fields of medical research, you know, it might be great to have the best treatments in the world or as a very current example, you might have a vaccine that's going to help. But if you can't convince the person who's resistant to vaccination to have it, then you've got a problem. So that's where this interaction, understanding how interaction works, understanding how to do it more effectively to get people on board for things like vaccines um, can, can really help. And, and yeah, it's, it's about, I suppose, uh, understanding those structures and um, what, what can be more effective in, in care and, and in providing care for at a more macro level or at a bigger level, higher level, I really just want to get for my students, you know, they're undergrads mostly, even, you know, people studying medicine and understanding that there is a science of communication, that we can look at this systematically. We can look at this rigorously. We can understand these things um, using, using research methods and we can improve things using evidence coming from that research. So it isn't all just fluffy stuff we've made up. It isn't just, oh, well, I've done it this way for 50 years, so that's the way it should be. It's, it's not that or that's how my mentor did it or whatever. It, it is actually, hey, look, here's, here's how we can understand it. And it's certainly not about making people robots. It's not about this is how you should always communicate. It's about people understanding how, that communication is, is dynamic and that it relies on responsiveness and listening and, and things like that. Um, but there's certainly ways that might be more effective in certain circumstances than others and being able to use that understanding to reflect on your own practice well, as a clinician is, is very helpful. In this episode, I chatted with Sarah White, a conversation analyst and lecturer. You can find more information about this episode in the show notes, including links to Sarah's research profile. Thank you for listening to Perspectives in Parryville.